facts, which at first seem improbable, will, even on scant explanation, drop the cloak which has hidden them and stand forth in naked and simple beauty. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, yeah, baby. Galileo. Matt, I I don't think I've ever wanted to be in a band more than called Drop the Cloak. Drop the Cloak? I mean, come on. Imagine how many girls would be in the front row of a Drop the Cloak gig. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, what can you say about Galileo, hey? What can't we say about Galileo? Do you know what? I'm going to make an apology before we, we, we go just on. go in. This, this, unfortunately, this, uh, this episode's going to go out a day oh. late. So sorry, oh. I forgot my laptop, oh, Jamie, for... and so I can't ed- I can't I can't edit the podcast until I get home. Matt, don't <laughs> say it like that. People will think that I've never edited. Uh, yeah, let's let's keep that a secret. Well, from the guys, listeners. we hope it was worth it. So we've got a good show today, haven't we, Matt? Oh my God, it's all about Galileo. It is, and we've got a special interview later, haven't we? Our monthly catch up with uh, David Baker or the one and only DB or David Baker Papa DB as I call him are we hey Matt well we've got we've got to start with a congratulations haven't we to get your get your glasses charged because it's to SpaceX uh, again yes they've they've been smashing it this week bit of a weird ending though but yeah hey. didn't do the land properly but but let, let's let's take their two two flights this week so Yes, it's the Falcon 9 flew a first stage for the third time. So it's been in and out of space three times now and managed to land that one. So that's the 32nd landing of a first stage. Becoming boring, huh? Just ridiculous. <laughs> well, just when we thought it was becoming boring, then the next time they go up, unfortunately, they didn't nail the landing. But there's quite yeah. a few tweets coming in this morning about how it's the most elegant failure of all time. Yeah, so that that works. Yeah, it was quite graceful. Yeah, in its in its, uh, in its fault. Yeah, so a, apparently a grid fin didn't deploy properly, and so the so the booster ended up spinning out of control. But still, it came in for a a, a kind of proper landing. It managed to control its spin at the last second, and gracefully plop into the sea where it fell over <laughs> and like splashed a cosmic. Down ballerina lowering herself into a bath or himself matt i like to think of spacex boosters as female though if they're male it all starts to get a little bit too phallic for me for my humble tastes oh dear (laughs) so yes elon musk said the Mm. gridfin hydraulic pump had stalled Mm. and that there is no redundancy for that particular part and they're probably thinking about adding a bit of redundancy now Oh, I think they should. Well, congrats, guys. That's, uh, that's you know, you're yeah. smashing it. Smashing it. Another congrats to NASA, because Osiris Rex has indeed reached the asteroid Bennu. Bennu. Massive uh, congratulations to Ariane 5, sixth launch yes. of the year, which has delivered the Indian GSAT-11, finally, 
into the planned orbits, and it was a special orbit, took extra special strength from the Ariane 5 to hoist up something, well, two satellites, mega, mega heavy payload up into geostationary orbit. And, of course, the Indian satellite, I spoke to Gurbir Singh, uh, yesterday, I was going to say, you had a good interview, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. It, we've got a brilliant Indian space special coming up soon. Might have to be a two-parter, a bit of an Alan Bond-style chat. Oh, class. Well, tune in for that. We sh- we haven't talked about that, and we really should. And I was supposed to with David, but we ran out of time. The CLIPS contracts that have gone out mm. to US companies to build the lander. To go and this down. is the commercial yeah. lunar payload services. Yeah, clips. So, yeah, clips to go down from the gateway down to uh, the moon and eventually Mars. Mm-hmm. And we should also say, whoop, the Soyuz managed to carry Anne McLean, David St. Jacques, and of course, Oleg Gunonenko of Roscosmos up onto Beautiful. the International Space Station. It all went to plan. Lots of congratulations. Jamie. Yeah. Do you remember Podcast 85? I do. Do you remember Simon, spelt C-I-M-O-N? I remember laughing about it at the time. <laughs> yeah, the crew interactive mobile companion. Well, they, they switched it on, I think, last week. And, uh, and there's a great video of Alexander Guest sort of interacting with it. Very How's similar. It getting on? Well, it was very similar to... To the missus's interaction with Alexa, really. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's, there's always, it's always very quite, it's pretty stilted, isn't it? Conversations with AIs at the moment. Yeah, it's not a flowing conversation. Check out that video of Alexander Gass. Check that out. He almost gets stroppy with, with Alexander Gass for not liking music. Well, it is music getting real. Or it not, is getting yeah. human. <laughs> it's like, so do Matt- you like my music? Yes. Who is our space legend of the week? Well, we gave it away, didn't we, with our with our quote? We did. Galileo Galilei. It's the one and only Galileo. 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 So, Matt, um, where was he born? Pizza in isn't Italy. Isn't it called P? Isn't it pronounced Pisa, Matt? Pisa, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He yeah. wasn't born in a pizza. That would be weird. Considered the father. Of observational astronomy. Father of science. So he's Stephen Hawking and Einstein's favourite scientist. I don't know how you get a bigger endorsement than that. Well, don't forget that he was also a great inventor. Mm-hmm. Telescopes. Yeah. Military compasses. Yeah, please don't forget that. And even a thermometer. Really? Yeah. Bloody hell, Galileo. <laughs> yeah. No, the thing is, actually, Galileo is... is I, I, know, I know this is ridiculous, but Galileo is loads better than I thought. <laughs> well, this, I, is, this is what we're here to learn. So, I, yeah, Matt. I wonder if it, it's because I wonder if it's because we're British and and it's all Isaac Newton this, Isaac Newton that, uh, and it really maybe Galileo's under Isaac Newton's shadow when in the rest of the world Isaac Newton's under Galileo's shadow. It's the other way around, possibly. Well, let's yeah. have a look into it. So, yeah, born fifteenth of February. 1564, and died 8th of January, 1642. He wanted to become a priest. He did, originally. Then he wanted to become a doctor. Then he became an art teacher. I like that. I'd love to see some of his art. And then he thought, do you know what? Maths is really my bag. He's pretty good at it. 
And then he got into telescopes. He saw some Dutch spectacles maker who'd made a spyglass that was used to observe ships. And Galileo thought, do you know what? I can make something better than this. And he was the first person that kind of really thought about looking at the stars with it. Or was he? I mean, Matt, you've got to look at 1610. This is a big year. Mm -hmm. Yes. He made observations of four objects surrounding Jupiter that behaved unlike stars. These turned out to be Jupiter's four largest satellite moons, which, of course, as you know... Mm -hmm. As we talked about last week. Io, Mm -hmm. Callisto, Europa, and Ganymede. They were later renamed the Galilean satellites in honour of the man himself. But get this, the Instituto e Museo di Storia della Scienza in Italy, mm-hmm. uh, actually has two of his telescopes that were hand-built by Galileo. Whoa. Which that is, is ridiculous. Right. But you know, I was mentioning, was he the first person to point a telescope at the sky? Turns out there was a, an English dude called Thomas Halliot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, who, who apparently did observe the moon through a telescope first. But unlike Galileo, he didn't actually make any kind of <laughs> really kind of conclusions from it he sort of just looked just at it like, didn't, oh, look at that look at that didn't know what it was whereas galileo used his genius brain to kind of work out what all these lines and dots were on the moon and he worked out that they were mountains and craters and mm. things like that and which which is phenomenal and of course that yeah that's mind-blowing highly controversial at the time everyone was going you're you're mad because, of course, the Roman Catholic Church was so powerful at that point. Of course. And uh, so much We so. can't be orbiting anything. <laughs> Everything's orbiting us, or we yeah. will burn you at the stake, which... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so Galileo eventually started uh, uh, yeah, really, really uh, pushing for this geocentric model of the universe. Um, however the Roman Catholic Church were not happy, so put him under house arrest eventually. And it took until 1992 for the Roman Catholic Church to apologise. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> but Galileo did get some things wrong. He, he refused to believe Kepler's theory that the moon caused tides. And he so wanted to get sort of evidence for a geocentric model of the universe that he um, mm. he kind of, I think he wanted to sort of say that the Earth's sort of movement around the sun was causing the oceans to slosh about. Yes. But it couldn't, it could only explain one tide a day rather than two tides a day. But, mm. you know. So he, he sometimes got things wrong, but he he looked at the Milky Way. This is a, I didn't realize he looked at the Milky Way, and up to that point, everyone just thought it was like well a milky kind of streak across the sky. And he was the first mm. person to realize no, it's actually just billions of stars packed so densely that they appear to be clouds from Earth. Uh, Matt, two years after he'd mm. spotted the moons of Jupiter, he observed Neptune. Yeah, this this is incredible. It appears in his notebooks um, as one of many unremarkable dim stars. He didn't realise that it was a planet, but he did know its motion relative to the stars before he lost track of it. But, I mean, we have to think. keep looking back at the dates here. 1612. 1612, yeah. Seeing Neptune. That's wow. just it, That is absolutely incredible. And, of course, his, his famous one, Saturn, 
when he looked at Saturn's rings, his telescope obviously wasn't good enough to um, resolve them as rings. So they, mm. he thought that they were two planets either side of Saturn. Mm. Um, but then they disappeared because the rings were completely orientated towards Earth, uh, like we talked about before, which actually helps you see the moons, uh, but doesn't help you see the rings. And so he thought yeah. the planets had uh, disappeared. So he, it put him into quite a state of confusion, that one. It did. I'm not surprised. So he put forward a basic principle of relativity, um, that the laws of physics are the same in any system that is moving at a constant speed or in a straight line, regardless of its particular speed or direction. Hence, there is no absolute motion or absolute rest. This principle provided the basic framework for Newton's law of laws of motion and is central to Einstein's theory of relativity. So, I mean, mad props we've got to give him. <laughs> yeah, that is absolutely incredible, isn't it? So Galileo himself said, imagine any particle projected along a horizontal plane without friction, then we know from what has been more fully explained in the preceding pages that this particle will move along this same plane with a motion which is uniform and perpetual, provided the plane has no limits. So that really is, yeah, Newton's laws of motion right there, the first law. Absolutely it's just incredible. so rad. Yeah. Matt, you know, you know I'm, um, I'm rock and roll through and through. Mm-hmm. Um, so on my, on my day off the other day, I, I started to go on YouTube and I did a deep dive on orbits. Mm-hmm. I was learning all about that. So this is, this is nice to hear all this stuff. Galileo is so cool that he's had lots of things named after him. What are they? Well, the first spacecraft to enter orbit around Jupiter. Tick. Galileo Global Satellite Navigation System. Tick. The GAL. GAL sometimes called Galileo is a non-SI or even quasi-SI unit of acceleration used extensively in the science of gravimetry. I think it's gravimetry. There we go. Never heard of it. I've never heard it said out loud. Gravimetry. There's a tough one. The gal. Yes, the gal. It's an interesting unit of acceleration. Don't know why you need it, but yes, one centimetre per second squared. Mm. The the gal. And of course, there's the exoplanet 55 Cancerai B, Mm. which was discovered in 1996 by Jeffrey Marcy and R. Paul Butler. But that was named officially Galileo on December 2015 after a competition to name it. And it is uh, a very, very large Jupiter, warm Jupiter, hot Jupiter-style planet orbiting the star 55 Cancerai A. It's a beautiful thing. Love that. Hot Jupiter. My favourite one is during the Apollo 15 mission in 1971, David Scott... Uh, had a hammer and a feather on the on the moon's surface and dropped them to prove that acceleration is the same for all bodies subject to gravity on the moon, even for a hammer and a feather. And he said, "Look at that, Galileo was right." <laughs> That's a very good little, very good little clip. If you've never seen it, I remember being shown that as a child in class on what those televisions that the teachers hauled in on some massive I love that <laughs> trolley that huge thing. trolley TV 
the world's heaviest object. Here's a really sad ending to the Galileo story. Oh. So after spending years in house arrest and not really being able to leave the house and writing and writing and mm. writing his works up, right at the end he says, Alas, your dear friend and servant Galileo has been for the last month hopelessly blind, so that this heaven, this earth, this universe, which I, by my marvellous discoveries and clear demonstrations, had enlarged a hundred thousand times beyond the belief of the wise men of bygone ages, henceforth for me, is shrunk into a small, into such a small space as is filled by my own bodily sensations. Oh, bless him. Uh, so, <laughs> touch of arrogance in there, he, but he kind of, I think he knew his place. He was probably blind because he used to observe the sun for long stretches of time while looking at sunspots with his telescope. I mean, yeah. yeah let, that, let that be a warning to you. That'll do it. That'll do it. So, Jamie, what's our spacecraft of the week? Well, no surprises here, Matt. It's Galileo. <laughs> Good. The NASA, the NASA flagship, flagship spacecraft. Yep. There we go. Uh, to Jupiter. First spacecraft to orbit an outer planet. Launch date yep. was October the 18th, 1989. Space Shuttle Atlantis, STF-34, 5.3 metres tall. It managed to get to Jupiter on December the 8th, 1995. And then, just like Cassini recently uh, was plunged into the uh, atmosphere of Saturn. R.I.P. Yeah, Galileo was plunged into the atmosphere of Jupiter on September the 21st, 2003. One thing I had completely forgotten about was the Galileo probe. Mm. Which 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 separated from the spacecraft five months before it got to the planet, and um, sort of travelled alongside but slightly ahead, and actually went into Jupiter. Oh, and it yeah, it went into Jupiter at <laughs> get this, one hundred and seven thousand miles per hour. <laughs> yeah, that's quick. That's quick, and it was built by the Hughes Aircraft Company, as as in Howard Hughes Aircraft Company. Oh. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah, and uh, and its major, major, major discoveries as it sort of uh, sent its data back to the Galileo spacecraft. Fifty-seven minutes of data before it was completely crushed by the atmosphere of Jupiter. But it made some very surprising discoveries, like well, huge thunderstorms and the abundance of certain chemicals and things like that in the atmosphere of Jupiter. Well, Amazing. let's rattle, let's rattle through some of the milestones. Yeah, let's do big milestones for Galileo. Go. 2.8 billion miles covered. 34 orbits of Jupiter in eight years. 800 plus worked on the mission. It made close passes by all the major moons. It's allowed scientists to determine, among other things, that Jupiter's icy moon, and my favourite, Europa, Mm -hmm. probably has a subsurface ocean with more water than the total amount found on Earth. Two to three times. Yep. And, of course, Io being highly volcanic, a hundred times more volcanic than Earth. And they found that the giant moon Ganymede possesses its own magnetic field, the first moon known to have a magnetic field. And evidence that Ganymede and Callisto have liquid salt water layer as well. Yeah, tick. First discovered the moon around an asteroid, tiny dactyl 
orbit the asteroid Ida. That's back to that hill sphere thing. Mm-hmm. Ida's got a big enough hill sphere to have a have a little moon dactyl. And Jupiter's ring system is formed by dust kicking up as interplanetary meteoroids smash into the planet's four small inner moons. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, it was the first flyby and imaging of an asteroid, Gaspra, and then a later, of course, Ida. Well, Matt, it made the first and so far only direct observation of a comet colliding with a planet's atmosphere. Shoemaker-Levy 9. Shoemaker-Levy 9. Do you know, I really remember this as a, as a kid. It was a very, very exciting news story. Hmm. Like, really, really amazing. So, yeah, it's such an, um, an amazing cosmic fluke that, that we're ab- we were able to watch an, uh, a comet literally be torn apart by Jupiter and, and then smash into Jupiter itself and see the impact. And all that just left these scars all over Jupiter that were way more visible than the Great Red Spot for months. God, that is nuts. Carl Sagan, Jamie, yeah. used Galileo... Uh-huh. to um, answer a question about whether you could actually see signs of life oh. uh, on, on another planet. So uh, on Galileo's first Earth flyby, it looked, at, um, it looked at Earth and see if it could detect life on Earth. And it, indeed it did. So in a Oof. paper Carl Sagan wrote, uh, yes, Galileo found Sagan's criteria for life, which was pretty exciting. I think... If you're mentioning in the same sentence Galileo and Sagan, I mean that talk about heavyweights. Yeah. So so Jamie, we've got a David Baker chat and guess what we're talking about? What are you talking about? We're being talk we're talking about how Britain has just been kicked out of the Galileo <laughs> uh global navigation system. <sighs> yeah, this is absolutely so- true. Well, this is something that we've all been looking forward to. Should we roll the tape? Well, before we roll, I just want to quickly say, since we talked, Airbus have come out and said that they're angry that the EU have have forced UK to quit, saying that it's just a serious blow to EU's common security and defence ambitions. Well, and even the form, yeah, and even the former Prime Minister of Sweden has said it's strategic folly of the first order. Yeah. So I would love to know what the listeners thought about is this political theater is it going to damage our relationship with ESA? what do you think about things that could happen after brexit and and building our own partnering with other people anyway oh, shall we listen brexit shall we, what a shower yeah. of shit <laughs> anyway shall we um shall we go straight to david let's go straight in let's roll the tape Ecoute. david how are you I'm absolutely fine, Matt, and uh, good to be back with you again. How's the weather down there? It's awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then again, that's England, and, and it's the meteorological first day of winter as we, as we speak right now, 1st of December, so I guess we should expect that. That's a good point. <laughs> so what have you got on the uh, what, what uh, recipes and, and what's on the menu today? Top of the baking list, really, is to bring up to heat in discussion um, the <laughs> astonishing news this morning as, as we speak, Matt, um, that the UK has pulled out or been expelled from the national security elements of the Galileo navigation system and that on the resignation of the science minister um, because of his apparent claimed inability 
to continue in office based on a deal which has been struck by the May government uh, with the EU, which absents us from the program and maybe requires us to pay back compensatory contributions that we had pledged to continue. Because listeners may recall that Galileo essentially is a long-term project that really originated 15 years ago. Um, and it was the Blair government who did a huge amount to bring this forward and to get Galileo integrated into what was then a European Space Agency project. Um, not to get deflected too much, but it's, it's, it's important to remind ourselves that this was an ESA project, and so Britain, um, as, as, uh, depending on which year the budgets go, is the third or fourth largest partner in, in the European Space Agency, had prime responsibility, and collectively we've paid in 1.5 billion pounds to the project, and we've got 1.15 billion pounds worth of work out of it. Uh, but over the years, and quite recently, as part of a package that the European Union has been trying to extract a lot of ESA projects and pull them under the control of the EU rather than the European Space Agency, which ESA has been very reluctant to offload any of these programs to the EU because they feel that they can transcend the political gameplays that go on between all member states within the EU um, and that they wanted to keep it a clean deal with industry but the EU finally secured possession of the Galileo project, so that has now come into these discussions. And uh, it is apparent that while we, we the British, assuming Brexit goes ahead, um, imagining it in that situation where we're no longer part of the European Union, um, we would only have access to the broader um, non-coded uh, aspects of the signal. Now, we were in a privileged position vis-à-vis -vis Galileo to the present time until this bombshell arrived this morning. And, and Matt, of course, we're speaking here on the 1st of December, so things may change, but that's when we're talking. Um, and uh, we had the privileged access for our military, so our military forces in their navigation alignments with satellites they use were able to use Galileo, that will no longer be possible. And so it will disrupt plans that the Ministry of Defence had to integrate our communications and navigation integrated systems, both for ground, air and sea position fixing using the, the coded military and national security frequencies and and really outside the military as well this component of the signal also was for emergency coordination of first responders in case of national disaster so we won't have access to that either it should be said in the context of this we never did have access anyway to the gps coded signal which only the u.s military have access to so this was getting us into a much more euro-based pan-european uh, all singing, all dancing, navigation infrastructure. Um, of course, Britain has been very, very involved in the hardware side of Galileo. And, of course, it was SSTL, Airbus now, has been involved with the manufacture of the prototype satellite. So this country has punched way above its weight and has got back out of it work equal to almost the amount that, ha that we have paid in. But these things ebb and flow. We could have surged to get back more slightly mm. versus the slightly less than we've got now. So it's, it's a really, really serious situation. 
Um, and, and there's one other concern as well, um, which is the fact that apparently, and, and this has only emerged because of the resignation of the Minister for Science, um, that uh, uh, we had already been planning, and I know this has been out in the media quite extensively, already we'd put aside £92 million, apparently, nice to know after the fact, hmm. um, <laughs> that, uh, that was there for funded studies on how to adapt our needs in the event that we didn't have access to Galileo. Uh, but I have to emphasize, the access to Galileo will be perfectly integrated for, for instance, cell phones, for car navigation systems, hmm. and general commercial civilian transport yeah. systems. Yeah. It's just the security, the emergency response teams, the defense areas we're being excluded from. And apparently now the May government is saying, oh, yes, of course, we can build our own system. Well, you are looking at at very large amounts of money. And I, I've seen a few um, semi-confidential quotes, so I won't talk about who's doing those, but the general figures are about in the region of £10 billion pounds, um, that we would have to to put out in order to get an equivalent system for our military. But the real, real problem in this, which is the elephant in the room, is that um, it's all very well to say we can build it. Yes, we have the brains. Yes, we have the manufacturing capability. Um, there's Airbus up at uh, Stevenage. There's huge satellite manufacturing um, element within the pan-ESA pan-European framework, um, and, and Stevenage has recently got a contract for a big satellite deal out of ESA in the last few weeks. So while the EU is pulling work away from Britain as part of the price it has demanded for this, this deal, whatever the actual deal finally is agreed on, um, ESA itself is actually giving Britain more work and, as always, is working right outside the constraints and the politicking of the European Union. But the real problem at Stevenage is that now, because there's such a heavy pan-European workforce there, there's a lot of Italians, a lot of French and Spanish and some Germans there, um, and, and there's work going on at Stevenage, um, which, which, which really is, is, is we, we can't really talk about it, but not because it's in the military sector, but there are things that are, Stephen is, is taking over work that Europe hasn't got the capacity, or continental Europe has not got the capacity to do. And we, we, we won't go further into what projects those are, but there are some amazing things going on for which there just isn't the workforce in Europe. When we are outside the EU, that workforce won't be there. So there is not enough skilled labor in the UK indigenously. We won't be able to put in the effort that's needed to get a replacement for Galileo. So it's, it's all very well for politicians to say, oh, yes, we can find the money. Yeah, yes, we'll build this. Look what we're doing now. It's wonderful stuff, space. It's all growth and expansion, and we've got this enormous surge forward. But you need people and you need pragmatically to sit down and actually work out who is going to do the work. And at the moment, a very considerable amount of work that is already boosting the UK space industry is being done by European member states and their employees that come and work for Airbus and come over to the UK. They, they will go. They will not be there because they don't see their futures and their careers here. Even though there's something legally that might allow them to be able to stay, they don't want to because they see it as closing down and therefore they're not career paths. 
The problem is, in many areas, there actually isn't work. For instance, in the Italian space, aerospace sector, there just is not the work for a lot of Italians that are working over here in our space industry here who can get a fast track into areas that they cannot get in their own country. So it's a deeper mess than really we're being led to believe by this, oh, it'll be all right on the night. Oh, yes, it's fine. We've done the deal. Yes, it's all very good. That's a politics. Speaking, that is not a pragmatic business management. <laughs> no, but is the? <laughs> it seems to me it's it's back to that analogy of of Brexit being like a a, a tea bag coming out of a cup of tea and being chucked in the bin. It's like <laughs> it's just, it's it's in neither it's in neither party's interest, is it? I mean, because Europe Europe completely kicking Britain out. Presumably, <clears throat> Britain's military expertise is a huge deal for. Um, for Europe, it's you know that yes. they must be the biggest or one of the biggest military partners in the sort of European protection uh, endeavours. Yes. And and yes. like you said, if if we're, we're employing lots and lots of European citizens in in yes. various science projects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So do, do you? Yes. It, I know, obviously, we've got May's deal and 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 we have a kind of Brexit thing, but we still got all the, the, those. A year, a year or two years to negotiate how we kind of get around those issues. But yes. one thing, that one point I wanted to ask about was that there was it was always touted that um, there'd been cons- some kind of heavy-handed tactics from the British government where we'd um, where they'd actually sent people around to places like Airbus and said, "Oh, by the way, it, we might be kicked out of Galileo." So all the intellectual property that that's uh, that's British intellectual property. You need to protect right now. Is was was there any truth to that? There is. I'm, I'm not really quotable on this, but I do know from what I hear that those moves have been made very definitely, and I think there has been far greater depth of penetration into embarrassing issues for the government that is already beginning. Or has for a year or more has begun to realize that industry and commerce and major businesses that are drivers in the UK economy um, really need to be given the advance notice that there is very much a 50-50 probability that we will be excluded from a lot of things. And I think evidence of that is that already the, and I know it's, it's outside the space sector, but in the aircraft industry, which is pretty close to the space manufacturing base, mm. it is an industry from which the space industry emerged. Um, But already, while the French and the Germans are in a partnership deal to develop a successor to the F-35 Lightning, and this is no surprise, whenever you induct a new aircraft like the F-35, which is coming online as as the RAF and the Royal Navy's major strike fighter, um, you start designing its successor because it takes that long it takes mm. 10 to 20 years um and and so you Im- immediately start work well where's the french and the germans going ahead with their next generation which which will be sixth generation air combat aircraft uh the british have already signed a deal with sweden to go cooperatively and we are already signing deals as a country i say we as a country signing deals outside the european union for cooperative joint ventures which we've never done before in these fields so on the positive side for the aerospace sector we are seen as a prize bull tied up 
and really having to feed what's given us from other countries in order to sustain the infrastructure of our hugely successful aerospace capabilities. Well, that, that was the other point I was going to make. If, we, if we're booted out of Galileo, could we turn around to, say, other partners who aren't in the Galileo system? I'm assuming that, that includes Norway, maybe, Switzerland, mm-hmm. Canada, India. Allies, could we not club together and create yet another GPS-style system with our allies and and therefore <laughs> uh, yeah. create jobs and create um, you know yeah. commerce that way is that yeah. is, is that a feasibility? Well, I think that is very much the case, and already um, manufacturing here has been approached. It's a very specific, dedicated sector in terms of satellites. Mm. Um, quite apart from the aircraft industry, as 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 you and our, our listeners are very well aware. Um, but yes, there has there have been approaches made, and India is a very interesting point because it aspires. It it has this this huge enthusiasm, uh, both cultural and political in order to to do well in space and my goodness it's punched above its weight hasn't it for mm. the for what is a relatively small amount of money they're achieving huge things indeed and with china with the baidu system their navigation system you've essentially got four now you've got the gps on the navstar satellites you've got the russian system glonass mm. you've got the baidu system Baidu, Baidu, uh, from China, and India has already begun to develop its own navigation satellite system. Britain is that tied-up cow there which can be used to milk opportunities through cooperation. How far and how fast this is developed needs a definitive decision on just what we do have access to and what we don't have access to within the European Union. And I I do see, and it's not a reflection of my personal views on how it should go, um, which must remain agnostic, (laughs) (laughs) but but there are potentials there if we can only get our act together and the politicians will support an industry-to-industry development. We need to keep the politics out of this and the politicians head down on doing the administrative paperwork for the deals. But industry must lead this and business must lead it. And through both wars and political discord between nations. It has always been business, and it has always been economic opportunities and industry that have built countries out of a morass and a malaise or of an inadequacy through literally the the erosion of its capability through conflict. Always. It's not the politicians doing deals. That's an infrastructure. So what we really need to do is to take the politics and particularly partisan politics, right out of this equation and get very pragmatic, roll up our sleeves and get down to business. Because there are a lot of countries, India will never do business with China. They see themselves, this year, the population of India will exceed that of China. Oh, wow. And in, India sees itself on a roll. Yeah. They're nudging on 1.5 billion each. That's pretty much the entire, yeah, it's half the globe, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is indeed. And so there are tremendous market opportunities. And the only the only restraint will be the disparity with regard to the the cost of these things, because we have we have a a way of life in Europe and in what's euphemistically almost called the Western world, compared to the East, the the wage structures, the payments, um, whether India could afford what it would cost for them to be a partner in a British system. But I think certainly there's opportunities there. But it can't, you can't just throw a switch and suddenly offload Galileo and immediately start the next morning with a UK central system. It's got to come through 
to uh, negotiated deals with a lot of other countries. That's big, that's big news. Uh, really interesting to see how that one pans out. Yeah. Also, coming up, I suppose we should talk about the uh, 50th anniversary of the big one, Apollo 8, coming up. Yes, indeed. And there, there's been such a massive interest in this uh, right across the board. And there's, there's um, uh, an unconstrained enthusiasm for, for the technical aspects. But very often, the, because, of course, the victors write the history, the story you get from NASA isn't really the whole story. Uh, not that they're lying about anything, <laughs> but, but it's, it's very much put out. And I think, I think one point no, worth noting is while it is a tremendous celebration and while it was really a Christmas to remember 50 years ago, uh, it was an extraordinary thing to, to experience and to be part of. At that time, I was part of the Mission Planning and Analysis Division, working trajectories and flight paths and, and also operations with regard to just what you could squeeze out of this mission. And it was, it's very interesting. I often smile to myself when I read consistently that Apollo 8 was suddenly out of nowhere as an opportunity to get ahead because the lunar module was delayed. We'd had the first manned Apollo flight, which was Apollo 7 in the October 68, and then the next one was to be Apollo 8 with a lunar module in a, in a highly elliptical Earth orbit testing out there. And then Apollo 9 was to have been um, essentially a repeat of 8 around the moon, maybe. But because lunar module was late, they inserted program planners inserted this circumlunar mission which had no lunar module and was bold because it had no backup engine uh, such as was available with the descent engine when you took the lunar module with you even getting into lunar orbit if something happened to that engine getting into lunar orbit you still had a backup engine in the in the lem descent stage of course you divested yourself of that opportunity when the lem went down to the surface and still you just had the backup but it was a bold move when you'd flown only one mission with a crew but you know the origin of this going around the moon with a single command and service module, a single Apollo spacecraft, goes right back to 1964. And I can remember very, very much, this was a year after NASA inducted uh, almost 200 U.S. Air Force officers to essentially put the program on track to achieve a moon landing by 69. Because under the old order up to September 63, there's no way NASA was going to make it. Um, because they didn't have that, that military-style focus discipline and removal of extraneous activities that weren't really necessary to actually achieve the goal. So as part of that, the Air, the, the Air Force approached NASA and offered at a time when our unmanned robots like Ranger and Surveyor were in terrible trouble and were not producing the results, Surveyor was hugely delayed and was still in 64, two years away from his first flight. Ranger program was failure after failure after failure, and it was only on the seventh launch that it succeeded. So this was a parlous time for getting detailed information, and the engineers were pushing hard and saying, we need more detailed information on the surface characteristics. All we've got is telescopic observations, nothing else. And it's difficult now to recall that the best images we had of the surface were those from telescopes on Earth. Mm. until the mid-1960s, several years after the development of the lunar module began. So there was huge pressure, and NASA struck a deal with the Air Force and the National Reconnaissance Office to declassify aerial reconnaissance cameras that had been built by Kodak and the Kodak Biomat system for use in the 
aerial reconnaissance platforms that were used in spy planes. And so that system was transferred for use in a project that began in 1964, quite late, Lunar Orbiter. Mm. And that turned out two and three years later on a fast track because it took a camera system already developed as a spy camera for the U.S. Air Force. And right at this same time, the Air Force said, would you like a pucker, full-up spy satellite, the K-87, to put on the nose of Apollo, take Apollo to moon orbit and do very high-resolution imaging of the surface, which, without an atmosphere, and down around an altitude of only about 70 kilometers, you will be able to get a resolution down to about 10 centimeters on the surface. Fantastic, said NASA. And so plans went ahead for, long before any landings were considered, to fly Apollo missions in moon orbit to do a photo reconnaissance. Fast forward four years, suddenly we realized, and I can remember the birth of this, really in early 68, before even the first manned Apollo flight. Let's push on and use an Apollo for a big, photo reconnaissance mission first and then it was morphed over into using Apollo 8 with essentially good handheld cameras to do photo reconnaissance over the landing sites by which time of course lunar orbiter had come good and with the spy satellite cameras used in the NASA lunar orbiter from the National Reconnaissance Office it came good and in 1967 in fact the U.S. Air Force pulled out of that and said, well, your lunar orbiter is doing fine, so look, we won't, we will cancel the deal with regard to putting a K-87 on the nose of Apollo on the docking ring. So instead of a lunar module, you'd have this huge spy satellite in front and do essentially a ground track alignment so that you kept it pointing down toward the surface as it went around the moon, taking all these very high-resolution images. So really, it, Apollo 8, as it flew, was pulled off the shelf and came out of a a project that had its origins four years earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not quite, yeah, so like like you said, it's not quite as rushed as everyone said it was. It, well, interestingly, no. interestingly, we've got a KH-12 in, uh, launching probably on the day that this, this podcast comes out on a Delta IV Heavy. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so <laughs> and that's, so it's, it's, it's just, but, you know, you read the NASA histories, they don't like to make any reference to, you don't even find serious description and discussion of all those 200 U.S. Air Force officers. But, but, uh, uh, and obviously they all turned up in civvies uh, and didn't wear the uniforms, but it was General this and Lieutenant Colonel that, um, and they moved into all of the key positions at NASA, and it was only essentially um, the Manned Spacecraft Center, the Marshall Space Flight Center, that really remained immune from that. And under Kurt Debus, who was director of the Kennedy Space Center, you had a whole raft of U.S. Air Force officers who brought the systems engineering approach uh, which is a particular management tool that was used in the development of the ICBMs, in particular the Polaris missile system. And that's where they brought the PERT program in, Program Evaluation Review Technique, PERT, which was the program model that had fast-tracked both Polaris and Minuteman, which was the land-based missile. And that management team was transferred over, um, who had been schooled by General Bernard Schreiber, who was head of 
the US Air Force of ballistic missile programs. And of course, that whole flotilla of, of specialists moved in to NASA. And the phase shift in NASA from calendar 1964 was phenomenal. And, and it, to be there at the time, I can remember it. it. It was literally like moving into a whole different way of doing business. And that's how we got on the moon with that kind of approach and with those kind of people in charge. And it was a brilliant high level um, decision by Jim Webb to allow these people to come in and bring all the backup possibilities and support because they could get access to these, these spy cameras and this spy equipment. And in fact, the J-series missions of 15, 16, and 17 were given access to the mapping camera, which came directly from iTech, right out of the spy satellite program. Yeah, well, we, we often talk about, uh, all, all, you know, the engineers and the astronauts, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess yeah. that the management teams around NASA and, and, the, and, and actually it's something I've noticed when I've interviewed people from ESA and, and places like that, their, their, their career paths, if they're to go higher up into, in the organizations, they go from essentially engineers into, yeah. into managers. And I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by that um, Yes. transition because it's all it almost feels unnatural for an engineer to become a manager i don't know why <laughs> well you've hit your you you've put your finger right on the very thing that happened within the apollo program so many people if they did good work tapped on the shoulder right you're in charge of this department now from tomorrow and and there was a what you know and a turnaround <laughs> and, and 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 they'd never thought of themselves as that but they'd shown flexibility of thinking creativity the hand up when asking for volunteers that is the way that you demonstrate your ability to to put your back behind a project rather than your own personal interest in the detail that you're specifically assigned to and i you could see this palpably within the companies as well as within the natural infrastructure yeah that's that 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 is really, really interesting. I, 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 yeah, I need to look further into that, uh, <laughs> into that whole transition. It's, it's very, very cool. Yeah. Uh, you you yeah. did actually mention earlier on, of course, you've got this influx of military, military personnel. You, just yeah. before we came on air, you said something really interesting about the, the wage structures of the civilians and the military personnel. Yes. Yes, yes, that's right. Most of the astronauts came out of the military um, and... Initially, I think there was some empathy with a lot of the guys who um, who essentially uh, were spawning off of these astronauts, the media, and of course Time Life realized that these guys were not paid anything more than their military pay, and they just got flying pay for their missions. Nothing else. You know, these, these guys, and, and you talk to, well, I can remember back to a lot of the Apollo astronauts who had a hard time um, clothing themselves with the type of clothing that was worn for the functions they were asked to go to. <laughs> there was no budget for uniform, a, a, you know, a uniform budget. You didn't get a tax rebate if, 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 if you were able, you know, to go out and buy clothes for a, for a particular function because of the job you were doing. And a lot of the wives in particular felt, felt really sidelined in that they all of a sudden required to go to presidential balls or the governor of a state would invite them to this great function. And perhaps the ladies are more consciously aware of their appearance and how they wish to be seen 
by other people um and and that's quite natural we we, we all feel we're shaped by the way we we clothe ourselves to a certain extent and i think that's perfectly natural um but they were being catapulted into situations where where they just did, you know they they came essentially from hometown America and, and they came from Midwestern states. They came where, where none of these guys even had a suit half the time. And, and they were in the military doing a job and because of the momentum of the program, propelled to extraordinary heights. And then when the civilian astronauts came in, they came from test pilots. And Neil Armstrong, um, right off the top of my head, I cannot recall the figure, uh, but he was paid an amount which was about twice what the um, what the military pilots were able to to command. And while we have been talking, I have just dug up from my files as I look at my screen here the actual salaries that were paid <laughs> to the Apollo Eleven astronauts in the year that they flew to the moon. Now, Neil Armstrong was on pay grade GS-16, step 7, and he earned $30,054 per annum in the year he went to the moon. Well, that's good wages. $30,000. Now, Mike Collins, and or actually his salary with his annual pay and allowances of of an Air Force lieutenant colonel, and with his time in the service, he earned (laughs) $17,147.36. And Buzz Aldrin... Um, as I turn the page, got just over $18,000. So pretty much near twice the amount that Armstrong got. Not because he was the commander. It was totally irrelevant who was in the job slot. This was for a position. So essentially because Neil Armstrong was an NACA test pilot on the X-15, he was in a civilian pay grade structure and was not part of the military pay grade. And it's always been the case that the actual monthly paycheck of anybody in any armed service in the developed world anywhere gets a fraction of what they could get as a pilot in civilian Mm. life. But the military have such an infrastructure of support with housing and with everything else that it's compensatory. But in actual salary terms, the civilians got nearly twice the civilian astronauts got nearly twice what what the military guys did. And that was never a bone of contention because they were all in it together and and pay grades didn't come into it. But it emphasizes the fact that um, on those kind of pay grades, and this is when the dollar to the pound was four to one, four or five to one. Um, So you were looking at a salary there which, which is really incapable of supporting the kind of lifestyle they were propelled into. And again, it just opens up the reality of the phrase that NASA prepares these guys to go to the moon. It never prepares them to come back home because what they faced, both the lifestyle that many of them did not like, did not want, propelled into the limelight, into publicity, having to appear constantly. It's something astronauts balk at today. Mm. Poor old Tim Peake, I don't know how he keeps smiling. <laughs> because guys like that are, ab- you know, inside, that's the last thing in the world they want to be, is puppets on a propaganda string, which is essentially what astronauts become because of their great achievements. The public want to see them. They want to hear them. 
They want to know that they're inspirational. You've got to have it that way. But the kind of person who becomes an astronaut is not the kind of person who likes to, to, to stand up and come on stage, dress to impress. It, that's just not what they are as people. They roll their sleeves up and get on with a job. And because it's so unique, it is, it is pursued by the public who demand their attention. And we need them to inspire. Because although these, oh, it's been said so many times, they stand on the shoulders of giants, etc. But in fact, you know, they themselves are so aware that the people who actually give them these opportunities, that provide the vehicles for them to achieve these great things, are, um, are, are hidden almost behind an opaque wall of window of, of work in developing in engineering science all the capabilities that they work with. So, so in many ways, it's a lose-lose situation for a lot of these guys because they, once they get beyond that point, first step is to be chosen as an astronaut, then it's reasonably normal life, and then you make a flight, and that's it. Your life is controlled and, and is never your own again. Uh, hats off to Tim Peake. He, he always comes across as just the most consummate professional ever. Yes. <laughs> He's just a, yes. what a fantastic person. Um, Indeed. Before you go, is there, what's coming up in this month's space flight? I must admit, I, I very much enjoyed last month's space flight. It was uh, a really enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many great articles in there. I, I did find myself well, screaming at one of them a little bit. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got coverage of the International Astronautical Congress in Bremen. We've got uh, the extraordinary, wonderful success of the British Interplanetary Society with Rice Space. And we've also got an analysis of, I've got maps of the first two Space Launch System Orion Flights, Exploration Mission 1, Exploration Mission 2, with detailed charts which show every step of the trajectory, what's going to happen on each of those two flights. So that's something to watch for. And uh, a whole smattering of news. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait for it to land on my new doorstep. (laughs) (laughs) And good luck with that, Matt. (laughs) Thanks. Okay. Cheerio, David. Thanks very much for, for taking the time out, as always. Thanks, Matt. Bye for now. Oh, incredible. Once again, thank you, David, as always. Uh, Jamie, I've got a couple of space facts for you, and then we must go. Hit me. If the Earth was the size of a tennis ball, Galileo, the spacecraft, would have travelled about 15 miles. Yeah, and so New Horizons, which is on its way to Ultima Thule, um, uh, 21 miles that would have travelled, or in reality, 4.1 billion miles. Ouch! I, and I went a bit crazy with these because I've got a new spreadsheet where I've worked out I can I can put in anything and it, oh, and you it love tells a spreadsheet. me uh, I love a spreadsheet and it tells me and it tells me things. So if Neil Armstrong's trip to the moon was one mile, Galileo has travelled twelve thousand miles. Well, Matt, I'm going to leave you with one that's going to make your ears bleed. Are you ready? Yeah, go on. If then. the Earth was the size of the smallest bacteria, hmm then Proxima would still be one kilometre away. <laughs> How'd you like them apples? How'd you like them Proximas? I mean, think about it, Jamie. Just think about something a kilometre away and then a bacteria, and that that's how far we've got to go. Just to Proxima. Let alone yeah, another d- bubble universe that I'm definitely yeah. going to visit when I'm older, Matt, <laughs> when I'm grown up. <laughs> bubble time oh christ so out of all of those i think my favorite is 
Earth being smaller than a golf ball, with Voyager being small, 15 times smaller than a bacteria traveling 35 miles away from it. It's just insane. How insane. How brilliant are humans to be able to have done that? We're pretty good. So, Matt, if I'm a fan of this show and I'm new to it, mm-hmm. what can I do? You can go to iTunes, press subscribe, and give us a five-star review. Tick. That's the first thing, Jamie. And then nip over to Patreon and have a have a have a or nip over to our website www.interplanetary.org.uk. Have a little wander around there. Maybe buy yourself some merch, and maybe nip over to Patreon where you can donate if you've got if you can, and don't don't feel pressured into don't this. Don't feel pressured. I tell you what, though, pressures, Matt. But we absolutely love our patrons. We love our patrons. Hey, Matt. You know, you mentioned our merch. Mm-hmm. Would any of them make good stocking fillers for Christmas? Uh, oh, man, would they? I would love to wake up to a Rocket Equation iPhone case. And I think that the best present you can give your parents is an interplanetary podcast mug. They can have Definitely. a nice hot cup of tea on Christmas morning out of. Yeah, the, the interplanetary podcast mug, I think, is the jewel in the crown. It's huge. <laughs> Everyone wants one. Well, it's been emotional and, um, you know, go and look up in the sky and think of our mate, Galileo. Look up right now because Orion is spectacular in the evenings at the moment. It is. All right, guys. Bye-bye. We love you. See you next week. 